Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is the Full Sports Monty. My name is Monty Williams. And for you regular listeners, you've already noticed we're not using our standard intro. And when the podcast is over, we're not going to use the standard outro either because this is a different kind of podcast. This is a departure. We're going to spend the entire time talking about Frank Denius, who passed away on July 29th at the age of 93. Frank was a very public figure. He led a very public life. He was a philanthropist all across Central Texas. He had a major impact on the University of Texas, not only the athletics department, but across the entire university. Although, to be fair, there's never been a Longhorn football fan quite like Frank. And finally, the name Frank Denius is very well known to military historians, and that's where my personal recollection of Frank Denius begins. From 2010 to 2014, I was lucky enough to work closely with Frank on a documentary that focused primarily on the final year of World War II in the European theater, but more to the point, it focused on Frank and his fellow soldiers who served in the U.S. Army's 30th Infantry Division. That documentary is called Heroes of Old Hickory. That's the nickname of the 30th Division. We're uploading this podcast on Tuesday, August 7th, nine days after Frank's death. And the reason is August 7th is the 74th anniversary of the Battle of Mortain, a very crucial battle that very few people have heard of. For five straight days, Frank and his comrades were horribly outnumbered. They were facing the dreaded SS 1st Panzer Division. They had occupied the whole ground. There were about eight or 900 of them, and they were fighting five to seven thousand troops trying to storm the mountain and kill them all and for five days they held them off it was some of the most vicious and desperate fighting of the entire war 74 years ago today that battle started 74 years ago frank denius entered american history i first met frank through congressman jake pickle I was the congressman's campaign press secretary, and Jake Pickle, of course, was also a loyal UT alum. He was a letterman. He was on the swim team. He was a decorated war hero in his own right. He was a naval officer on board a destroyer and saw action in seven different naval battles. Tagging along with Jake Pickle and Frank Denius on the UT campus was, and I want to make sure I get the right word, exhausting. At the time, Frank was in his 60s, Pickle was in his 70s, I was 35, and they ran me ragged with notes and handshakes and instructions and reminders, and they were walking all over the 40 acres at a breakneck pace in 100-degree weather. They were laughing and reminiscing. I remember Pickle looking back at me and saying, come on, Monty, either keep up or lose some pounds. And Frank thought that was hilarious. Over the years, I saw Frank at UT events and fundraisers and occasionally at Longhorn football practice when anyone could just walk up and watch. And then my screenwriting partner and I were contacted by Lou Adams, a veteran TV producer who had worked back in the day with Frank Sinatra and Bob Hope, not to name drop, but for the past several years, Lou had been working on a documentary. He had traveled to France several times, had shot hundreds of hours of interviews, and quite frankly, spent thousands of dollars of his own money doing it. The documentary was largely going to be about Frank, but while we were going over the material and getting up to speed, what became clear was the real story was about bureaucracy and institutional neglect and egos. 
and regionalism and the dwindling ranks of these World War II veterans we have come to call the greatest generation. It all came down to this, the recommendation at the end of the war that the 30th Infantry Division, that's the one named Old Hickory, should receive what's called the Presidential Unit Citation, the highest honor a soldier can receive as part of a larger body. And the 30th was never awarded that medal. And that's why Frank was so involved. He felt the 30th Division had been overlooked and neglected and treated unfairly. Year after year, he saw his band of brothers dwindle away at these different reunions. We're talking about a soldier who won four silver stars and two purple hearts when he was 20 and 21 years old. When I first really spent a lot of time with Frank on this project, it became clear he didn't want this documentary to be about him. As a matter of fact, no one who knew Frank, at least no one I ever talked to, got the impression that he enjoyed talking about the war. He lived history. He knew he was part of history. And when the situation required, he talked. But the emotions I saw, at least around the edges, were grief and sadness and memories of fear. There was also pride, but never enjoyment, not that I saw. Frank grew up in Athens, Texas. He grew up in a well-to-do family, at least compared to other East Texas families during the Depression. But if memory serves me, it was also a family with a military history. So Frank attended military school, but not West Point or the Citadel or Texas A&M just down the road. He went to Shriner Military School in Kerrville, Texas, which now is Shriner University. And Frank's introduction to the war came as it did to so many young men and women of that day on December 7, 1941. Frank recounted to us that he and his classmates were at a movie theater and, and a truck pulled up and an officer got out and he yelled at the projectionist to stop the movie and told everyone to get on the truck. They went back to the dorm, collected all their stuff, and the next day they were on a train headed for basic training and ultimately headed for war. Now, about that division that Frank was in, the 30th Infantry Division. It was established in World War I. It served with distinction, but the majority of the soldiers going into World War II who were assigned to the 30th were from rural areas, many from the South. And so, of course, they've also grown up in the Depression, and they were tough, and they were resourceful. Many of them had hunted for food, tracked animals, repaired truck engines, pumps, farm equipment. They slept outside. They were used to extreme weather conditions. These were very tough men. And then on top of that, the 30th was a reserve unit. For the first two years of the war, Frank and his fellow infantrymen trained in Indiana. And so compare the 30th, mostly reserves, mostly rural, to the 1st Infantry Division, known as the Big Red One. Many of the 1st Infantry's leadership did come from West Point. Many of the lieutenants in the division came from West Point. The Big Red One was the 1st Division into the war. They saw action in North Africa, and then they were in all the meat grinder battles up through Italy. They were the ones who landed on Omaha Beach during D-Day. 
the 30th Infantry didn't arrive in Europe until June 10th and 11th, and that's after the beach was secure. And so many members of the 1st Infantry Division kind of thought of the 30th as these Johnny-come-lately Southerners, reserve units, and not up to snuff. Frank thought that the Army leadership looked down their noses at the 30th, and many of the soldiers shared that. We interviewed lots of soldiers in the 30th, and they all thought that. The commanding officer for the 30th was Leland Hobbs. He was a West Point grad, and he was a classmate of Dwight Eisenhower and Omar Bradley. And as a matter of fact, Leland Hobbs' graduating class at West Point was called the class the stars fell on because so many of them were these high-visibility generals. And Frank and others thought that Leland Hobbs, the very general commanding the 30th, looked down his nose at the soldiers in the 30th. But the fact is the 30th were full of tough soldiers, resourceful soldiers. They knew how to improvise. If a truck broke down, there were more than enough shade tree mechanics to fix it. And compare that to the behavior of the German army, especially the SS. Very disciplined, yet also very rigid. If a truck broke down and stopped the convoy, then you had to get a mechanic. No officer in the German army was about to roll up his sleeves and help fix an engine. If that mechanic were miles away, then the convoy just stopped. It was that rigid, but not in the 30th. After they landed, they were part of a larger force that was penned up in a little town called St. Lowe, not far from the beach. And the first real engagement Frank witnessed was an unmitigated disaster. The U.S. Army, in trying to break out of St. Lowe, moved into position that the U.S. Army Air Corps, soon to be the Air Force, but the U.S. Army Air Corps dropped bombs on their own troops and killed more than 100, including one of the top U.S. generals in the entire European theater. What had happened is they had smoke bombs that were signaling devices. The wind shifted. It blew the smoke over the area they weren't supposed to bomb. And when I talked to Frank and the other soldiers about this tragedy, I know they just felt very resentful that it had happened. And what an ironic and horrible way to be introduced to battle and to war than this horrible incident of friendly fire. But the breakout at St. Lowe did occur, and so around the same time that Tom Hanks' character is looking for Matt Damon's character in Saving Private Ryan, in real life, Frank and the 30th were moving inland. Now, Normandy is a a vast, flat plain, with one exception, and that's the area around Mortain. Mortain is a small village. It was known for manufacturing pewter. Back in the 16th and 17th centuries, it was a tourist destination in the 20th century. As a matter of fact, that area was called the Switzerland of Normandy. It's dominated by the only high ground on the entire Normandy area, which is called Montjoy. But in military parlance, you name hills and mountains according to their peak elevation in meters. So for the U.S. Army, it was not Montjoy, it was Hill 314. Of course, because the Germans held all of France, they held Hill 314, but they pulled out right after D-Day because they had to go and participate in trying to keep those troops as close to the beach as they could. And obviously, they did not realize 
if the Allies broke inland, that Mortain would once again be of supreme strategic importance. And so they left, and who took over Hill 314? The 1st Army Division, the Big Red One. But then they were ordered to come down off the hill and be deployed elsewhere, and so the 30th was ordered to occupy Hill 314. So on August 6th, you have the 1st Infantry Division filing down the hill, the 30th filing up the hill, and there was very little talk between the two. As Frank remembered, there was not exactly tension, but there was just a a sense of distance. And so the two different divisions, the 1st, Blue Bloods from West Point, the 30th, Southern boys who were in the reserves didn't say much to each other. So on August 6, Frank was part of a three-man team. They were forward observers, and they go up onto Hill 314, and they start looking for the optimal place to have a panorama of the plain below them so they can call in artillery fire in case they are being attacked by the Germans. There were three people in that group. Frank, Frank's commanding officer, someone named Lieutenant Bartz, and the radio man and one of Frank's close friends in later life, Goldie Goldman. Bartz wanted to move the foxhole as close as he could to what he thought was the line of attack from the Germans. In doing so, he was actually intending to move down the mountain a little bit. Frank vehemently disagreed with that because he thought the higher you are, the more you can see, and if we get down that close, we'll be overrun. And then what good are we? But Bartz was rigid about it, and Bartz was the commanding officer, so he prevailed. Frank told us that the first time they could sense that maybe there was something about to happen was there was this lone German plane that flew up and just out of rifle shot began to slowly circle 314. And they could only assume that they were assessing troop strength on top of the hill. And then later on that day, a German field kitchen began to go up at the base of the mountain. Because the first thing you have to do is feed your troops. And so that indicated to Frank that they were in for a battle. If you're going to start feeding people where no one is, then you can expect people to show up. And so he called in artillery fire and blew the hell out of the kitchen late on the 6th. So now it's overnight. August 7th, that was the official start of the battle. What happened almost every day of this battle was... You're not that far from the English Channel, and a fog bank would roll in around midnight, and it would mask the German troop movements. And so imagine it's Lieutenant Bartz and Frank and Goldie in a forward foxhole, and they can hear all this mechanized movement, tanks and trucks. You can hear voices. You can hear footsteps but you can't call in artillery because it's all blanketed in fog. And then at 2 in the morning, they had snuck SS troops up the hill, and they attacked with great fury all the forward observers in their foxholes. And because Bartz had put them out so close, Frank's foxhole was the first one to get attacked. 
They didn't know how big a force was coming to get them, but they were involved in fierce hand-to-hand combat. The first thing that happened was the 50 caliber machine gun jammed. And so Frank and Goldie had to use M1s and pistols to fight off the Nazis. Bartz lowered his head, crawled into the foxhole. He told Frank, I'm not up to this, and never lifted his head or fired a shot for the next four days. He reminds me of the character Himmelstoss in All Quiet on the Western Front, who was so blustering and so full of vigor before the battle. And then once the battle started, he completely shrank. And no one knows how they're going to act. That was one of Frank's points was, you do not know how you're going to act in a battle until you're in that battle. But Lieutenant Bartz, who had demanded that they take this forward position, was of absolutely no help at all for the entire battle. I think the best way to describe the battle is to work off this timeline that we wrote for the documentary, but this all comes from Frank. We sat down with Frank, and he came up with the entire timeline. We had some source material, but these are mostly Frank's words and his descriptions. We do know, though, that this was ordered by Hitler. Hitler ordered Field Marshal Klug, this happened on the 4th of August, to attack Mortain. It was called Operation Lutic, and Klug took his 1st Panzer Division, crack SS troops, to move against Mortain. The 30th Division is in Tessie, which was a small town not far from Mortain. You know what they were doing? They were basically trying to take a bath in a river and try and clean off and relax for a few hours. They had just come out of combat. On August 5th, they are told they're going to relieve the 1st Infantry Division. They get on a convoy, and they head out at 10 at night, and by 10 the next morning, they're in Mortain. They go up the hill. The 1st Division comes down the hill. Against my advice, Lieutenant Bart sets up forward posts in old frontline foxholes. We begin to sight in likely fire missions. What they would do is they would have the artillery, which was stationed about four miles away. They would give them coordinates. The artillery would fire. They would adjust those coordinates. And then once they were locked in, they'd say, okay, that's position A. And they would sight them in based on what seemed obvious that the Germans might use as attack venues, like the road, for one thing, or or valleys that you can move in a certain sheltered way. They'd call in fire coordinates on all these, so by the beginning of the battle, they had all these different artillery coordinates locked in. A lone German plane is spotted on 314 late in the afternoon. I discovered Germans setting up field field kitchen. I call in fire on the German kitchen. Under cover of darkness, Germans begin to move toward Mortain. 2 a.m., the German infiltration is underway. No advance advance artillery because of dense fog. Machine guns near Foxhole Jam. Pistols and M1 rifles. Bart says he's not up to this, crawls in a foxhole, and never comes out. Frank assumes Bart's command. We're talking about a kid who a couple of years ago was at the Shriner Military Institute. 
He spent a year or so in Indiana, and now he is literally in command of a forward observation post and one of the main people in command of the entire deployment of this battalion from the 30th Infantry Division on top of Hill 314. The fog lifts. Nazi tanks and troop carriers are out on the highways. They are in mass force for the first time since D-Day. It is a big risk for the Nazis because they don't control the air. By this time, the Luftwaffe had been devastated, and they really didn't bring in air attacks on Hill 314. It was the Allies that had superiority in the air. August 8th. Attempted airdrop of medical supplies from a spotter Piper Cub fails. By this time, they're running out of food. They're running out of medicine. They're running out of water. At one point, Frank related this story that's not in this outline, but I do remember it, that they sent a contingent of soldiers down downhill 314 to try and get behind a platoon of Nazis and ambush them to make the Nazis think there were more Americans on the hill than there were. But when they got to the bottom, they found a vegetable garden and a well. So instead, they bailed on their plans to ambush the Nazis and instead got as much food as they could carry, as much water as they could carry, and went back up the hill. That's the kind of improvisation that the 30th Infantry Division had. Okay, now it's August 9th. The battle's been raging nonstop for two days, and at 6 o'clock in the evening on August 9th, the Nazis, under a white flag, send up a courier who gives surrender terms. As the person said in the Battle of the Bulge, nuts. I mean, they told the Nazis, we're not going to surrender. Come and give us your best shot. So at 10, there was a massive attack. And at one point, they were about to overrun the Hill 314, so much so that where E Company was and their leader was a man named Curly, K-E-R-L-E-Y, had to call in artillery fire on his own position. The only thing he could do was alert his troops, we're about to have hellfire rain down on us, They took shelter. The Nazis were out in the open, but he literally had to call artillery fire on his own position. August 10th, they try for the first time to fortify and resupply members of the 30th Division on top of Hill 314 by flying C-47s over and throwing out parachutes with satchels full of medicine and food and ammunition, and there is a wind shift and the entire airdrop floats past them and down into the Nazi lines. And in fact, when the Nazis retreated after the battle, they left thank you notes for all the stuff that the Americans had airdropped, hoping for it to go to the top of 314, but instead it drifted down to the base of the mountain. On August 11th, that's when they first really started this attempt to fire medicine to the top of the hill by using smoke charges. The artillery would take a smoke shell, remove the smoke part, and load it. They'd try and pad the edges and load it with vials of penicillin and morphine. And they tried to fire it up to the top of the hill. Frank said a few of them worked, but not many. They were shattered, and it, it didn't really it didn't have the rate of success they had hoped. 
two things about Frank that that I saw in uh, kind of social media after he passed that are not correct. One, he did not land at D-Day. The 30th came in a few days after D-Day. And the second was this was his suggestion to do this. He never claimed it was his suggestion to load smoke shells with penicillin and morphine and everything. That came from somewhere else. And he said it was kind of limited success. But by now, the Allies are moving all over France. France is a panorama of battles, and they pull the 1st Panzer Division out of Mortain. And on August 12th, they wake up, the fog clears, and the Nazis are gone. And after 750, 800 soldiers fought for five days, with almost 300 of them killed, that is a horrifying casualty rate. The battle was over. And Frank came down from the mountain, but he did one last thing before he came down from the mountain, and that was to go to his commanding officer and report the behavior of Lieutenant Bartz. And Frank said, I had to tell them, this guy's not cut out for combat. He, he shouldn't be in the front lines or the theater of war ever again. He's going to get somebody else killed. He almost got us killed. I don't think Frank was doing that out of retribution. I think he was doing it out of utter logic. Now that he had seen what combat was like, he didn't want somebody like Lieutenant Bartz in the theater of war. Ironically, they were taking Lieutenant Bartz down the hill, back to the rear lines. Frank thought maybe for court-martial, and he was killed in a Jeep crash. So that's the utter irony of Lieutenant Bartz. After Mortain and Hill 314, the 30th was not finished with war. They fought in battles at Maastricht, at Aachen. That was a violent house-to-house battle, a real urban environment. And Malmedy, where 84 American prisoners were massacred in an open field by SS troops. I remember interviewing one of Frank's friends, Peter Menger. He was one of the first soldiers to come upon that frozen field with these dead bodies. And I remember interviewing him, and he was a gregarious guy, very eager to laugh, very lighthearted. And he said in a really understated way, once we saw those dead bodies, we didn't take any German prisoners until the spring. Imagine what that means. And, of course, that's through the Battle of the Bulge. Germans dressed up in American uniforms. They took Germans who had... They could speak English with American accents. They knew who played third base for the Cleveland Indians. And whenever those infiltrators were caught, they were summarily executed. By now, the 30th, landing after D-Day, but not getting a day off the entire rest of the war and going from the heat and the, and the hedgerow fighting to Mortain and then to Aachen to Malmedy, then the Battle of the Bulge, they were beginning to get this reputation as being complete badasses. As a matter of fact, the German high command called them Roosevelt's SS, which Frank, of course, never thought was a compliment. But Frank recalled that after the Nazis had finally surrendered, after they had gone through all this hard, hard fighting and had crossed France and Belgium and crossed the Rhine into Germany, once Germany surrendered, The first thing they were told is, get ready for Japan. We're going to bring you back to the U.S., and we will start going over the coastline. We'll start going over where we might land 
in force, a large invasion force, possibly one that might make D-Day look like a small thing. Of course, that never happened. Hiroshima, Nagasaki, the Japanese surrendered, and Frankenstead entered UT, and the rest is history. We spent hundreds of hours reviewing the content that Lou and his videographer, Mike Martin, himself a UT grad, had assembled, and it went kind of in naturally into two different categories. One, the celebrations in France and Belgium. They were held off and on over a period of 15 years as these World War II vets began to age, and they were in towns like Mortain and Maastricht, and people would turn out by the thousands to watch Frank and his fellow soldiers dress up in uniform, come into the town in these vintage Jeeps and troop carriers, and this these recreators would march in full uniforms, and there were speeches in town squares. There were somber ceremonies in cemeteries, and they got keys to the cities and medals and plaques, and these guys were heroes and continued to be heroes into the 21st century when they would return to these cities that they had liberated. Little kids knew who Frank Denius was. I'm not sure any kid under 10 years old who wasn't a diehard Longhorn fan or something in Central Texas knew who Frank Denius was, but these kids in France were taught who Frank Denius, who Peter Menger, who Pulver was. These guys were heroes to the French. The reunions that they'd have at home had a different feeling. They weren't so much a celebration. It was more of a tribute to their friends, their fellow soldiers, who'd passed away in the intervening years. They were usually held at like the ballroom of a Hilton or a Sheraton. They'd read names of people who had passed away and ring a bell to note the death of each veteran, but the talk would almost always get around to the presidential unit citation and why the 30th Infantry Division had not gotten that medal. One time, Lou Adams, the filmmaker, and I went with Frank to the World War II Museum in New Orleans. We were going to go talk to them about the 30th and see what kind of strategies we might employ to get this issue more high visibility. Of course, the museum staff knew right away They were in the presence of a war hero. They had done their research. And the tour through the museum, think of going through a World War II museum with Frank Denius. It's a double dose of history. Not only do you have the exhibits and the equipment and everything in the museum, but there is living history walking next to you and talking about everything. And then we had this formal lunch, and the museum staff gave remarks, and there were some military liaisons who gave a few remarks, Frank was asked to speak. He politely declined. And then they brought out some artist rendering. And then there was a suggestion of an exhibit that would honor Old Hickory. And then the talk turned to funding this exhibit. And it kind of became clear that they were hoping that Frank might fund a portion of the exhibit. And Frank never missed a beat. He smiled and nodded at the suggestion. But Lou Adams... The filmmaker was fuming. 
I could tell what he was thinking. You don't hit a war hero up for money on the very first meeting. I could tell that's what Lou was thinking. And on the flight back from New Orleans, I could sense that Frank was a little disappointed. He wanted the museum to focus on tactics for getting the Army or the Secretary of Veterans Affairs or whomever to try and get in their minds that maybe the 30th, as a division, deserved the presidential unit citation. Instead, it turned out to be something that I'm sure Frank faced countless times, which is the ask. Frank was generous in the extreme, but I just wonder how often Frank had been asked to open the checkbook. And I think he was really frustrated that that's what that visit, by and large, turned out to be. I want to point this out, too. Among Frank's many financial contributions, he did other things. One of the things he did with UT was he was committed to improving the lives of veterans who go to school there. And that's when Frank came into contact with Adam Wagner. Adam's a Marine. He served two tours of duty in Afghanistan. He enrolled at UT, and he recently told me that Frank played a major role in helping him meet people and network and advance Adam's chosen career, which is broadcasting. And so today, Adam Wagner, Wags as we call him, hosts the Wagner Wire, which is a popular show here on 104.9 FM, The Horn, the official flagship station of UT Athletics, and Wags is in broadcasting today, and he offers up Frank as one of the reasons he ended up in this profession. And when I was preparing for this podcast, I asked Wags if he'd want to come on and talk to me about the effects of combat on different individuals and how that might relate to himself and to Frank. And Wags hesitated, and then he respectfully declined. And it was the moments of silence that were sprinkled in, and it was the words that Wags didn't use that, to me, spoke volumes about the burdens that Frank Denius carried and that Adam Wagner carries today. Because I spent so much time with Frank talking about the war, I can't help but wonder what was going through Frank's mind during all those days, nearly every day during the football season, watching the Horns practice football. (laughs) What follows are entirely my opinion, no one else's. Football has always been compared to the military culture and more directly to war. And there are certain themes that stand out. The game's violence, the hand-to-hand combat, you acquire territory, there's the red zone, the goal line stand. And maybe at least for part of the time, Frank, while he sat there watching practice and watching linemen fight each other as he had hand-to-hand fighting and listened to quarterbacks audible as he called in artillery coordinates 74 years ago today, Maybe those thoughts were going through his head, or maybe that's how he kept those thoughts out of his head. He was such an active man, and maybe he realized that the way I don't have to daily revisit those horrors are to keep as busy as I can. But one thing I am certain of, what his daily attendance at UT practices actually meant, what it was symbolic of, was he was watching and supporting coaches 30 and 40 years younger than him. And he was emotionally connected to players 60 and 70 years younger than him. 
And so what that means to me is this idea of the disconnect between generations is completely artificial. 90-year-olds love Frank, but 19-year-olds love Frank. We're all human beings. We all want to be treated with respect. We all want to believe we matter as individuals, and that's what Frank did. He made everyone feel like they mattered. He broke down barriers. If you're a Longhorn fan and you're in any way connected to social media, you saw the outpouring of love and admiration from individuals that on the surface look like they would have nothing to do with Frank Denius, but in fact they had everything in common. You know, if I were to pitch Frank's story to a studio, it's pretty simple. Frank Denius started by trying to survive, then by trying to succeed, and finally by trying to help. So God speed you, Frank. Thank you for everything you did in war and in peace for Central Texas, for UT, for everyone whose lives you touched.